Well, good morning to you all. It's so good to be back with you. And in my conference today, I want to address the conversation between Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, a very famous conversation from the eighth chapter of St. John's Gospel. And as I mentioned in my first conference last night, there's something very powerful about being able to put ourselves in the shoes and the very person that Jesus is talking to. It, it has a certain directness to it and a sense of the Lord speaking straight to our hearts. St. Thomas Aquinas on one occasion wrote that when we hear the Gospels, we should receive them as if Jesus were speaking directly to us. That's what happened to St. Anthony, the founder of monasticism. He just came into the, into the church one day and he heard the Gospels being read. It says, have no care about the morrow, sell everything that you have, give to the poor and follow me. And he said, okay, and that's what he did. He just simply heard the words as if they were addressed directly to him. So here's the text. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he arrived again in the temple area and all the people started coming to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been taught, caught in adultery and made her stand in the middle. They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him so that they could have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and began to write on the ground with his finger. But when they continued asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Let the one among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he bent down and wrote on the ground. And in response they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. So he was left alone with the woman before him. Then Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She replied, No one, sir. Then Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on do not sin anymore. It's helpful to look at the larger context of this passage. It takes place in the eighth chapter of St. John's Gospel, as I said, and this is the very beginning, the first 11 verses of that, that eighth chapter. But by the end of the eighth chapter, what we find is that the Pharisees are attempting to stone Jesus now. <laughs> and that already is instructive because it means if we start by judging our neighbor, we may end up condemning Christ. It's really true. It's really Jesus we end up stoning when it's all said and done. Now, the literal sense of this passage is clear enough. Remember, the literal sense is the sense expressed directly and directly signified by the words, right? Just what historically happened here. The scribes and Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And they put him in what they think is an impossible situation to get out of. On the one hand, they saw that his doctrine of mercy, he was going around preaching about mercy for sinners, salvation for sinners. And he saw that it appealed to the crowds. Of course, they were jealous about that. And on the other hand, the clear teaching of Moses 
about the punishment for the sin of adultery seem to conflict with Jesus' teaching on mercy. And so they thought to themselves, okay, you tell me how your teaching on mercy is consistent and doesn't contradict God's justice as revealed in the law of Moses. They're trying to trap him in the seeming apparent contradiction between God's justice and God's mercy. And I'll have more to say about that as we go a little bit further on. He couldn't escape by challenging the charge of adultery because it says in the text she was caught in the very act of adultery. That's what it says. Now that immediately raises an eyebrow, doesn't it? It takes two to tango. (laughs) And obviously the man was involved too, but for whatever reason they don't bring him. So this seems to have been, and it seems at a very convenient time, they were trying to test Jesus. It seems like the timing is very convenient too. Probably, if you read between the lines, it was a case of entrapment, what we would call in today's legal system, entrapment. They probably got this woman, poor woman, they got a man to agree to seduce her, and then, then they brought her to Jesus in order to trap Jesus. So they were trying to trap her because they wanted to trap Jesus, which is, again, very often what happens. We judge our neighbor, we end up condemning Jesus. But be that as it may, It seemed to them that Jesus had only three options. The first option was to deny that Moses was a real prophet. The second option was to deny Moses' teaching about God's justice, rejecting the commandment of God himself. The third option was to forsake his own teaching on mercy. And any one of those would have spelled doom for Jesus' ministry, so they thought. They thought it was an inescapable trap they had laid for the Lord. Now, the first thing to wonder about is, why is Jesus' message of mercy so offensive to the scribes and the Pharisees? Why are they so upset about it? I mean, after all, who can get upset about someone going around saying that God is ready to forgive every sin, even the greatest of sins? The reason is this. Jesus' message of mercy was not selective. He didn't discriminate. It means he said everyone needed mercy and everyone needed all of God's mercy. And it was precisely that aspect of his message that was so offensive to the scribes and the Pharisees. They thought of themselves as justified by observance of the law. They thought we're observing the law. That makes us better than them. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the publicans, whatever, whoever they are. We're better. We're cut above. We don't need mercy. We fulfill the demands of justice, so we don't need it. That was a mindset of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were what we would call in modern terms Pelagians. I don't know if you've ever heard of a Pelagian before. Pelagianism was a, a, a heresy in the early church, and it's still around today. And that heresy basically holds that we can earn salvation by our own merits we don't need God's mercy, that, that we have within ourselves, without God's grace, the ability to do good and to become good on our own. It's Pelagianism, okay? So they wanted to be saved by their own efforts. And the very fact that Jesus was saying to the scribes and Pharisees that, no, you need mercy. In fact, 
you need more mercy than this adulterous woman, that enraged, enraged them, right? You remember Jesus saying it at one time, prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom of heaven before you. <laughs> you can imagine how outraged they were, okay? So, lesson one for all of us. Look, here we are all, all on retreat at a nice Catholic center, and we love the Carmelite sisters, and so we're very, probably a lot of us are, are more devout than the average Catholic, you might say, okay? Maybe that's true about us, and that's why we're here. That does not allow us to say that we're a cut above. We're better. We don't need as much of God's mercy as other people. No, you need all of God's mercy. Everyone here in this church needs as much mercy as the worst sinner you've ever met in your life. And, you, and until you get that into your heart, through your skull and in your heart, right, we're just going to be versions of these Pharisees and scribes. Um, you might ask, Father, how is that reasonable? How, how can I say that? Well, it's not me. What about what St. Paul says? St. Paul says, um, consider others as superior to yourself. He says that. Consider others as superior to yourself. And does that mean, you know, like the mass murderer who isn't repentant is better than me? Does that mean that the unrepentant, you know, pornography star is better than me? And have to consider them better than myself? Well, St. Paul had some experience that maybe all of us need to reflect on. St. Paul remembered being a really awful guy who was going around imprisoning Christians, even putting some of them to death. He was there consenting to Stephen's death, at the, first, the death of the first martyr. So there he had St. Paul who was a really bad person at one point in his life. And he had this wonderful experience. In a moment, God converted him from a great sinner to a great saint. And St. Paul also knew that our state at any given time in this life isn't really what defines us. What's going to define us is our state for all eternity. Who are we going to be at the moment of death? And there's no limit to God's mercy. So if we sit and we look at that mass murderer over there or that adulteress over there or that bad person over here, that greedy, angry person who's hurt you, who's hurt your family maybe, if we look at them and we say, I'm better than you, you're a sinner and I'm not like you, we forget that God's mercy might touch them. God might actually convert that person the way he converted St. Paul. He might even give that person, through his mercy and completely through his mercy, more grace than is in your soul. And then maybe because of your own pride in judging your neighbor, you'll fall into mortal sin and then tomorrow you both die and they'll be in heaven and you'll be in hell. And then where will all our judgments be then? In other words, St. Paul had enough good sense to know we don't judge the final state of anyone. We just assume that everyone we meet, no matter how bad they look right now in this life, we'll just assume they're going to have a higher place than us in heaven. Now, will that be the case? We don't know. But we'd be glad for that. We should be glad for that. We shouldn't be like the laborers who come late that are envious that the people who come at the very end get the same reward. We should have this sense of, 
I want God to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And may he have as much mercy as possible on everyone I come into encounter in my life. And may he make every person I have ever met, even the people who have harmed me and done me harm and those I love harm, may he convert them and make them greater saints than me. That should be the attitude of every Christian heart. And so when we meet those people in the course of this life, even when they're not yet repented, we should still think, oh, there's, there's a sleeping saint in that one. Just asleep. Just waiting for Jesus to wake him up or wake her up. And then we can consider everyone is better than ourselves. That's the real attitude that Christ wants for us to have in our hearts. And it helps us to escape this Pelagianism that's just latent, that can dwell like a little monster in there. So, there's a literal sense. Let's talk about the spiritual sense of this passage. And in fact, I want to focus on two different spiritual senses. I told you about the three different spiritual senses. I'm going to look at the allegorical sense and then the anagogical sense. So remember, the allegorical sense is, how do the real historical events in this reading, in this conversation, how do they themselves signify the mysteries of faith in this present life? For example, the sacraments, for example, the incarnation, etc. It begins on the Mount of Olives. It says Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now in Greek, the word for olive is eluson. Now you hear that and it should sound a little familiar. Eluson. Where have I heard that before? Because the word for mercy in Greek is eleison. And we say it sometimes at Mass. Kyrie eleison. Eleison is mercy, eluson is olive. Huh? So anyone who's reading the scriptures in the original Greek would notice the play on words there. It's as if he's saying Jesus is going to the mountain of mercy, okay? the heights of mercy. And that implies he's going to reveal to us just how God's mercy and justice are not opposed but harmonious. That important question about the relationship between God's justice and mercy is something I'll deal with at the very end of this conference. But just to give you an introduction, most Catholics have, in my opinion, a false idea of the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. They think it goes like this. God has to be merciful, but he can't be too merciful because then he's not just enough. And he has to be just, but he can't be too just because then he's not merciful enough. So God's kind of balancing the demands of his justice and mercy and sort of he's sometimes he's merciful, sometimes he's just, just to kind of get equal parts of it. Huh? That's how I think most Catholics think about the relationship between God's justice and his mercy. And it's, that's completely wrong. And it's wrong for two reasons. First, it's wrong because it makes it look like God's virtues and his goodness are fighting. There's not a fight between God's justice and his mercy. They cooperate, they don't fight. Secondly, God's justice is infinite and God's mercy is infinite. It's not like his mercy is capping his justice or it's not like his justice is capping his mercy. So if you've got an understanding of the relationship between God's justice and mercy as if they're competing and one's limiting the other, they're both limiting each other, that's just bad theology. 
You just don't understand how justice and mercy exist in God. So we're going to have to return to that and understand more deeply how God's justice and mercy are not only not opposed, but harmonious and even uh, help one another in the sense of they grow together. So let's go back to the woman now. The woman signifies, in this allegorical sense, sinful humanity. So that's all of us. We all get to be signified. We're all the woman in this, okay? Even me, because I'm a sinful man, okay? She's in need of mercy, just as all of us are, but her accusers demand justice. And these accusers might be our own sins, our consciences. They might be the demons, right? There seems no way out. How can God be both just and yet merciful to our fallen human race? How's that possible? But then something really wonderful happens. Jesus bends down and he begins to write in the earth. And all this is done in silence. What's the meaning of that? What's the significance? St. Thomas Aquinas, with the keenness of his mystical insight, says that by this action is signified God in his mercy stooping down to assist sinful humanity. In fact, he says, every time Jesus stoops down in this passage, it signifies God offering mercy. Every time Jesus stands up, it signifies God's justice. In fact, do you know that the word, the Greek word for justice is the word, it's identical to the word standing upright. So literally it says, if you read it in the Greek, it says Jesus stoops down and then Jesus is just. Jesus stoops down and then Jesus is just. That's how you would read it in the Greek, okay? So St. Thomas sees very clearly the interplay between God's justice and mercy are signified by Jesus stooping and standing upright. So, what does the writing in the earth signify? Once again, St. Thomas penetrates into the mystery. The Greek word here is kathographin. And it appears only once in the New Testament, and that's here. This is the only place where that word is found in the entire New Testament. It doesn't exactly mean right. That would be graphene. Graphene means right. But katagraphene, when you add that prefix, means to write down into or to write forcefully upon. So I think a, a more accurate English translation would be engrave. Isn't that fascinating? I don't know if any of you saw The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie, but when that scene is portrayed, whoever, whoever consulted on that film knew Greek because when Jesus is writing at the beginning, you literally have his finger just pressed into the earth. You see him engraving in the earth. It's fascinating. So the, whoever, there was very good consulting on that movie from the standpoint of this passage. Huh? Now, while this word does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament, it does appear in the Old Testament Greek text, the Septuagint. And there, it almost always refers to one incident in the history of salvation. And can you guess what that is? It's when God engraves with his finger the Ten Commandments in the stone tablets. Katagraphene. Almost every single instance of the word katagraphene in the Old Testament Septuagint refers to that one instance. So the fathers of the church, knowing Greek and knowing the Septuagint well, they get it. And so they say that what Jesus is doing at this moment when he's stooping down is he's writing the Ten Commandments. 
engraving it in the earth, as if to signify to the scribes and Pharisees, yeah, I'm not going to deny God's commandment. That option to deny the commandment of God, no. That word is written. It's permanent. It's enduring. The word of God shall endure forever. And he's writing the Ten Commandments right there on the earth before them. But at the same time, there's a spiritual meaning. And St. Thomas Aquinas says this, just as Jesus is writing with his finger in the earth, engraving with his finger in the earth the word of God, so too, at the moment of the incarnation, did God, through the Holy Spirit, the finger of God, write into the earth of our human nature the word of God made flesh. St. Thomas says this moment where Jesus is engraving in the earth signifies the moment of the incarnation. It says in the prophet Isaiah that the heavens rain down the just one and the earth bring forth a savior. It refers to the incarnation. Our Lady's sacred humanity, our Lady's uh, human nature, I'm sorry, brought forth the sacred humanity of our Lord. So she was the earth, and into that earth we found written, inscribed, the word of God by the finger of God, the Holy Spirit. Did you know that in the scriptures the Holy Spirit is called the finger of God? Did you know that? We sing that in the, in the uh, Pentecost sequence. We call the Holy Spirit the finger of God. So pay attention on Pentecost Sunday when you listen to the, the sequence and you'll hear the Holy Spirit referred to as a finger of God. And the reason the Holy Spirit is called the finger of God, I think there's at least two reasons. The Holy Spirit is the one, of course, who touches us most immediately and directly. So just as someone comes and touches, the first thing that they touch you with is their finger, right? So the Holy Spirit is the one who touches our soul most immediately and interiorly and intimately. Huh? But also because of the fact that we know in our Trinitarian theology that just as the Son proceeds from the Father, so the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, the Son is often referred to as the right hand of the Father in the Scriptures. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. It says in the Old Testament that God has bared his right arm, his right hand, signifying the Word of God. Huh? So you see how the, the right hand proceeds from the body, just as the Son proceeds from the Father, and then you've got the Holy Spirit <laughs> proceeding from the Father and the Son. So the finger in another way, is aptly a sign of the Holy Spirit is proceeding from both the Father and the Son. So just FYI. And the way we know that that, um, that phrase, finger of God, refers to the Holy Spirit is because in the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, the exact same passage occurs. But in one Gospel, it says, if this is done by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God is upon you. If you cast out devils by the Holy Spirit. In the other Gospel, it says, if he casts out devils by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what that means is that Jesus probably used the words finger of God, and then in order to explain it, the other evangelist said that means Holy Spirit, okay? So the finger of God means the Holy Spirit, and so St. Thomas sees that, the Holy Spirit writing the word of God into the earth. So this is a moment of the incarnation, and it's all done in silence to signify the ineffableness of the mystery. How does that respond to the accusation of the scribes and Pharisees? Remember, he was trapped in three ways. He either had to deny Moses was a prophet. He wasn't going to do that. He had to deny the commandment of God. He wasn't going to do that. He wrote that, engraved it into the earth. 
or he could deny his teaching of mercy. So what's he going to do? His answer is, well, yes, she deserves justice, but now that God has become man, something new has happened. And therefore, mercy is available for sinners. And it wasn't at the time of Moses. Mercy is now available for sinners because God has become man. I have become man to take upon myself the punishment due for her sins. She need not suffer anymore. It's me who will suffer the, the punishment. I'll die on the cross for her sins. She doesn't have to anymore. This is a mystery that's being signified. So, nevertheless, this message of hope for sinners is, falls on deaf ears. And the scribes and Pharisees, they break the reverent silence with their cacophony. They want justice and they want blood. So, justice they want and justice they get. Jesus stands up. And now he pronounces a sentence of justice. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They've asked for justice. Now they're the ones who stand newly accused. Every one of them, every one of them deserves a stoning. And maybe they won't admit it at first. Again, they're probably the ones who entrapped the woman. That's already deserving of stoning, huh? Harkens back to the time of Susanna when the elders falsely accused her. In any case, he doesn't deny that she deserves death, but he asserts that they do too. So we're all in the same boat. If you don't want her to have mercy, then you're not going to have mercy. Pick your poison. What do you want? And this causes them to put themselves in the shoes of the accused, huh? And perhaps they would have stoned her anyway, but because of their pride, they wanted to look humble. Sometimes pride disguises itself as apparent humility. So what happens next? Jesus stoops down again. And that signifies God's mercy once again. But now he's not offering mercy to the woman. He's offering mercy to them. The newly accused, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he begins to write again in the sand, but this time the word is not katagraphing, but graphing. As if to say, now he's writing lightly in the earth, not indelibly. As if to say, what I'm writing now can be easily wiped away. And the fathers of the church tell us that at this moment, he's writing down each of their sins individually. He's manifesting to them, yeah, I know your sins and here they are. He just starts writing their sins. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the eldest. And Jesus was left with a woman standing before him. The eldest was most aware of his sins. He lived a long life, and he'd grown old in his sins. And therefore, faced with the decision to admit and confess his sins before the people, or to remain in his feigned innocence, he flees from the mercy of God offered him by Christ. And so it was with all the others. G.K. Chesterton said, um, children, because they're innocent, demand justice. (laughs) 
old people because they're guilty, they want mercy. Uh, <laughs> it's true. When little children, it's all about what's fair. You know, if you've noticed, like children, like that's not fair. It's all about what's fair. As you get older and older, you're like, actually, it doesn't really matter if it's fair. <laughs> we, we're just going to have to just admit the fact that we're not, you know, if it were all fair, this, the, we'd really be in a mess in our family, you know. I tell people when I prepare them for marriage, oh, please don't demand justice in your family. Nothing destroys a family like the demand for strict justice, right? You just have to, every family needs to say, I give up my rights. I give up my rights out of love. You just have to do that in order to, um, to have a family, which is the way Jesus wants a family to be. So, in any case, these elders are aware of their sins, and they see them, and they just, and they just walk away. They could have received mercy at that moment. Imagine what was available to them at that moment. If only even one of them had said, you're right, Lord, I'm guilty of that sin. I'm just as bad as that adulterous woman. I might even be worse. Please forgive me too. Imagine how that would have changed things, but they couldn't. They just wanted to pretend that they were innocent and they walked away. So what happens last of all? Jesus stands up again to render his just judgment. Jesus looked up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Everyone except the woman had concealed sins, at least in front of the crowd. No one's sins were concealed in front of Jesus. But everyone but the woman had their sins concealed. She's the only one whose sins were made public. So she had no reason to run from God's mercy. (laughs) There's there's nothing left for her. There was no, no further shame of admitting her sins. So she just stood there with Jesus so she could receive his mercy. And so now she's standing signifying that she is just, justified not by her merits, but by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And he tells her, sin no more. And that's it. So beautiful. As a priest, I've really noticed this over and over again. It's very hard for people to confess their sins. We're very ashamed to confess our sins. We're not quite as ashamed to commit them. Have you noticed that? (laughs) But committing sin is a bad thing and confessing sin is a good thing. We should be ashamed of committing our sins, not ashamed of confessing them, but it's exactly the opposite way. Why is that? It should not be that way, my sisters. It should not be that way. We should be very happy to confess our sins and not ashamed to confess them. And we should be ashamed to commit them, but this is who we are. Poor creatures with original sin, huh? So, to recap the allegorical sense. The woman represents sinful humanity in need of God's mercy. The scribes and Pharisees signify those who accuse us, our own consciences, the demons. Jesus stooping down signifies God's mercy. His engraving in the earth signifies the incarnation. His standing up again signifies his justice, his condemnation of all those who have need of mercy. 
And then he's stooping down again, offering mercy to all. And the woman standing alone at the end signifies a humanity justified by God's grace, now free from the accusation of guilt. So that's the allegorical sense, a beautiful understanding of the mysteries of this present life and the way we ought to respond to our sins in the present life. Now I want to reread the entire passage again with a new sense, the anagogical sense. And remember, the anagogical sense has to do with the last things, the next life, death, judgment, heaven, hell. So it says at the beginning that Jesus goes before the Mount of Olives, goes up to the Mount of Olives. And that's significant because the scriptures teach us that that's exactly where Jesus will return at the final judgment. Did you know that? Here's a passage from Zechariah. That day his feet shall rest upon the Mount of Olives. It's referring to the final judgment day. His feet will rest upon the Mount of Olives. St. Thomas Aquinas says this, It can be gathered with probability from the scriptures that the Lord will descend around the place of the Mount of Olives just as he ascended from there. Okay? So you have this, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and then what happens? Then he goes into the temple, and he sits down, and all the people are gathered to him. Jesus takes the judgment seat, and all nations are gathered before him. Everyone is brought before the Lord at the final judgment. So this whole scene is actually, in its anagogical sense, a rendering of the final judgment. That's what's happening here. Okay? And there's two types of people that are brought to Jesus at the final judgment. And you might think, yeah, the good and the bad, the sheep and the goats, the sinners and the non-sinners. That's what you might think. No, it's only sinners that come at the final judgment. We're all sinners. Everyone comes as a sinner to the final judgment. There's not one person among all of us subject to original sin who has not been guilty of some sin. Okay? But the two kinds of people that come before Jesus at the final judgment are one, those who in spite of their past sins desire God's glory first and don't care about their own glory. The other kind of person that comes, the other kind of sinner that comes, is the one who cares about their own glory, not God's glory. And they want to pretend to be innocent. So I'll tell you a story to illustrate this. Once a young man came to me, and he had lived a really good life. He was in his early 20s. This was outside of confession. And he, he had just asked me about a particular sin that he had committed recently, and he asked whether or not I thought it was a serious sin. And he had really struggled his whole life to be free from any serious sin, you know. So, so he asked me about it, and after I heard it and listened to the details, I said, yeah, I think it was a serious sin. And he was just heartbroken. He, had, he tried so hard to avoid committing any serious sins in his life, and then something like this happens. He was really sad. But just then, the Holy Spirit gave me exactly the right words to say to him. I said, tell me this. What would you prefer in the next life? Would you prefer that your innocence be glorified because you never committed a serious sin? Or would you prefer that God's mercy be glorified because he forgave you it? And he immediately brightened up. He said, you're right, Father. I would rather that God's mercy be glorified than my innocence. And he went away happy. 
and peaceful again. It's really, those are the two people that come before the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, at the final judgment, those who are saved by God's mercy, they'll want everyone to know all their sins. As incredible as that sounds to you, it's true. You'll stand before the whole world and you'll say, you'll shout from the mountaintops, look what God forgave me, look how good he is, look how merciful the Lord is, because your only concern will be about God's glory. And you'll want to make sure that God is glorified as much as possible. And you want everyone to know how good he is, how merciful the Lord is. So you shout your sins from the mountaintops. See what he forgave me. You see what he forgave me. He's so good. And then there'll be those other ones. And they'll desire more the appearance, the false appearance of their own innocence. And they'll rather than admit their own sins, they'll flee right to the depths of hell. They themselves will flee from the face of their merciful Savior, just like the scribes and Pharisees in this reading fled from the face of Jesus, right when he was in the midst of offering them mercy. They couldn't stand the idea of appearing guilty before others, or even maybe before themselves. So they themselves fled from the face of their merciful Savior. So, that's your choice. It's going to be a choice for all of us at the final judgment. Are we going to be willing to admit our sins? So now that helps you understand a little bit more of the practicality of the sacrament of confession. You're practicing, <laughs> right? Just getting some practice for the final judgment. Here I'll go, it's easy. I'll go into a little room. There's just one person there. He's just a priest. And I'll say, okay, here's some sins that I've done. <sighs> I can do it. I did it. I said I admitted my sins. So you do that enough, regularly enough, and you get kind of used to it. And you're like, okay, I can admit my sins. It's all right. And maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable than, you know, at the final judgment, you've done your dress rehearsal, and now at your final judgment, you say, look, I did this. And instead of being ashamed to confess your sins, you'll be very happy to confess your sins because all you'll think about is the mercy of God. Huh? So, it's only those who have nothing to lose, whose sins are already made known. They're the ones that are going to hear the final command of Jesus at the very end, right? Those of us who remain before our merciful Savior, whose sins are made public at the final judgment, will hear these words. Has no one condemned you? Neither will I condemn you. Go, go to heaven where you can sin no more. So you see how the whole passage can be reread in terms of the final judgment and then our entrance into eternal life. Death, judgment, heaven, hell. It's miraculous. Isn't it amazing to see how the scriptures have such, such depth of meaning? They're inexhaustible. It's very beautiful. I promised you I would say something about the relationship between God's justice and mercy now at the end of this conference. And um, so I want to say a few things, just so you understand more properly how God's justice and mercy are related. St. Thomas Aquinas, in one question in his Summa Theologiae, he asks the question whether or not it's possible to commit the sin of presumption. And he raises this interesting objection. He says, it seems that it is impossible to commit the sin of presumption. 
because presumption consists in hoping too much in God's mercy. But no one can hope too much in God's mercy. Therefore, it's impossible to commit the sin of presumption, right? Say, hey, that's a good point. How does he resolve it? He answers, he replies in only the way a saint can. He says, the one who commits the sin of presumption hopes not too much but too little in God's mercy. Because the one who commits the sin of presumption wants to be freed from the punishment of sin but not from the guilt of sin. They want to continue to sin. They just don't want to be punished for it. That's presumption. And the sin itself is by far the greater evil. It's much worse than the punishment for sin. And therefore, you hope too little in God's mercy. You want to be freed from the lesser evil, not the greater evil. So that's how it has to be for us. You can never commit the sin of presumption so long as you don't want to continue and persist in your sins. Do you understand that, my sisters? As long as you don't want to continue in your sin, you can't be guilty of the sin of presumption. Sometimes you get to the end of your life and you think, maybe it's presumption, I'm hoping too much in God's mercy. No. As long as you want to be freed from your sins, it is impossible to commit the sin of presumption. Okay? So, if we inquire more carefully about justice and mercy, what we realize is that there are really two things, two evils that we're subject to in this life. The first one is we're subject to sin, which separates us from God. The second evil that we have is in some way more insidious. It's our ignorance of our sinfulness. We're blind to our own sinfulness. Pope Pius XII said the greatest sin of our times is the ignorance of our sinfulness. Right? So these are the two problems we have. Let me give you an example, a true life example that happened to me once. It didn't happen to me, but to someone I knew. So I knew a woman, I used to work at a law firm in Newport Beach, and I knew a woman there, lovely woman, her name was Linda, and she started losing weight at some point. She wasn't changing anything, she wasn't doing anything different, but, you know, she lost, like, you know, she came into work one day, she said, I lost five pounds last week, and she's all excited that she just suddenly lost weight, and she thought, nothing, big deal. But after about another three or four weeks, she had lost, like, 20 pounds, and she started to become a little alarmed. So she went to the doctor. She felt fine, but she went to the doctor, and they did a test. She had cancer everywhere. She was dead in a few days. She couldn't feel it. It was a strange type of cancer that just didn't cause pain. The only symptom was that she lost weight, and she didn't feel the suffering or the pain. And it can be like that with our sins. We're much worse off if we're sinners and we don't know it because we'll never seek the divine physician to heal us, and it might be too late. So the good Lord has two remedies for us. The first remedy is his justice to remove our ignorance of our sinfulness. The second remedy is his mercy to remove the sin itself. You see that? So he's a good doctor who uses two different instruments to heal us. But the first thing he's got to do is he's got to take away the ignorance of our sinfulness. Otherwise, we won't even come to him for mercy. Now, St. Paul confirms this when he says, Romans 3.20, by the law came knowledge of sin, not forgiveness of sin. The law signifies God's justice. 
So that gets us just to the point where we realize, I need mercy. I need mercy. Then we can turn to the merciful Lord and receive his mercy from our sinfulness. Now you might say, but Father, every Sunday at Mass, I say the Confidior, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. I I beat my chest. I admit in front of everyone I'm a sinner. So I don't need any justice from God. Right? That's what we think. Well, my sisters, it's one thing to admit our sins in general. It's another thing to admit them in particular. Isn't it? Let me give you a simple example. Let us say that you had a debt. You had a debt of a million dollars. But you thought it was only a thousand dollars. And some kind person comes and pays your whole debt. Would you be sufficiently grateful to that person, thinking he had only paid off $1,000 when in fact he paid a million dollars? No. Well, the same thing happens in our relationship with the Lord. So long as we're not aware of the full depth of our misery, the full degree to which we need God's mercy, we don't have any gratitude in our hearts, or certainly not a sufficient gratitude for the Lord. There's not one person in this church that is as grateful to God as they should be, including me, perhaps more than anyone, me. All of us need to understand just how much a debt God has paid for us. And so that's the work of God's justice. And you see him working it out in the lives of the saints. You hear those stories about how the saints felt this deep sense of their misery, their their sinfulness, As we grow in holiness, my sisters, it doesn't look the same on the inside and the outside. On the outside, it looks like a triumphal procession. Oh, look, she's levitating now. (laughs) And that same Teresa of Avila who was levitating at the same time considered herself the worst sinner on the face of the earth. Becoming holy is like walking towards a bright light. The closer you get, it's easier to see the stains on your garments. Holiness means humiliation. Holiness means being aware of your sinfulness. And at the same time, not despairing or losing hope in God's mercy. Because the whole time, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to stay in the shadows just because the closer I draw to Christ, the more I see my sins. No, I will not do that. Because I know he's a merciful Savior, and his sins do not scare him away from me. My sins do not scare him away from me. And so I'll draw closer and closer, and I'll admit all these problems I have, and I'm okay with that. That's how we have to be. One eye on our misery, but not both. The other eye on God's mercy. And then we walk forward with confidence. That's the only way in which we're going to be saved. So that's the work of God's justice. And thanks be to God, for most of us, he's very, very gentle. He reveals to, these, to us our sins very, very gradually and gently so that we're not surprised all at once and discouraged all at once. And he does it in many ways. Let me give a simple example. Are you attached to created goods, too attached? How will you know? The only way to know is if God takes them away and you lose your peace. It's the only way you could know.
So that's part of the work of God. Nature kind of does it. As we get older and older, our health, our good looks, all the other things. We might even lose our minds as we get older. Who knows what you're attached to, huh? We get older and older. And then God also, through the work of the different mysteries of his mercy and his justice, he reveals to us in other ways, through our prayer life, maybe even in mystical ways. We experience depression, sadness, difficulty, relationship problems in our families. So very often what God has to do is he has to remove from us the goods that we're too attached to. And that's a work of his justice. And he's simply just saying, not that I want to hurt you, but the opposite. I want you to realize that you're not focused on me. You're focused on created goods. You're focused on my gifts to you. But you're not looking beyond the gift to the giver. So let me take that gift away so it doesn't get in between us. So it doesn't get in between us. And for all of us, the ultimate moment of that will be the moment of our death. At that moment, every created good will be taken from us. This whole life is a dress rehearsal for that moment. And will we in that moment be able to look our Savior in the eye and say, oh, it's okay, Lord. I don't need anything but you. I just need you. We'll be able to confront and experience that final separation from creatures and death with peace of soul and even in some sense joy. So that's how God's justice and mercy work together. The more just he is, the more aware we are of our need for his mercy. Then he can be more merciful and the more we can experience his mercy and be grateful for it. And then he gives us a little more justice and then we experience more mercy and they grow together and they don't limit each other. God's justice and mercy work harmoniously in order to save our souls and bring us to a state of confidence and utter union with Christ Jesus. So there we go my sisters. Let us, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of all the things that can go wrong in this world, never lose sight of the fact that all of this is really the work of God's mercy. All of it. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.